Can't think of a better section of the Bible to be studying that would help see that prayer answered. Lord, show us Christ through the preaching of your word till everyone professes Christ is Lord. Because we're in that section of the Gospel of Mark that that is declared. And then we wrestle with all that that means in our life. If you're just new with us today, you're joining us on the 17th week of our study through the Gospel of Mark that started in November. And we have been hanging out for the past five weeks in what I'm going to call, identify today as a transitional section of the Gospel of Mark. There's two chapters that we've been in ever since five, actually six sermons ago, where we reach that climax of the first half of the gospel that resulted in Peter declaring that Jesus is the Messiah. Just by way of review or introduction, if you're a guest here, the gospel of Mark was written by Mark, who was recounting Peter's own story of his times with Jesus towards the end of Peter's life in Rome. And he was writing for Roman Christians who had no gospel, no scripture to speak of. And uh, Peter and Paul, who both would soon be martyred in Rome, uh, were going to be leaving them. And so Mark faithfully records Peter's recounts of his time with Jesus. And there are two questions that are on his heart to answer for these young Gentile Christians and also for us. First, who is Jesus? Who is he really? And then based on that, what does it mean to follow him? Couldn't ask two more basic and important questions. If you don't get those right, nothing else matters. You get those right, everything falls into place. And so Mark has taken us through these early years of Jesus' ministry, helping us look at what he did and what he said, pondering with the disciples when they watched him and debated among themselves and asked the question, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? And so finally in chapter 8, it comes to this climax. It's time for you to declare what's been brewing in your heart and in your spirit. And Jesus says, who do you say I am? Peter gets it right this time. You are the Messiah. So that, that's the point of transition. And so we've been hanging in that area, kind of wrestling. There have been incidents we've looked through in these chapters. And we've kind of had the opportunity to kind of hang in around this moment of declaration. But today, this transitional time ends. We're going to look at the end of chapter 10 because next week, Jesus enters Jerusalem. He goes into the evil empire where Jerusalem is. And we'll spend the rest of our study right through Easter and the week after looking with Mark at the final week of Jesus' life and ministry. And so this is our last opportunity to wrestle with this until we get caught up in all the drama that's going to take place during the Passion Week, beginning with the triumphal entry next week. And so turn with me to the 10th chapter of Mark. It's page 716 in the Bibles that are in your pew rack. We're going to read a lengthy portion of it, and then I'm going to comment on it. So I'd like you to read along with me, so make sure you have something out, because I'm going to be alluding to things in the study. Obviously, that's the point of our study today. 
And I'm going to begin reading it, verse 13, which Len covered last week at the end of his sermon, but I'm sure there were so many heavy ideas you were still thinking about of most of the content of that sermon that uh, this may have gotten lost at the end. It happens to be the right place for us to start. And I'm going to explain later that I think Jesus' comments about children actually are the interpretive key to everything else that follows. And so we're going to pick up beginning at verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place their hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Just a little pause there. I want you to note what he just said. The kingdom of God belongs not to these just children alone. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And then he explains that more fully in verse 15. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Now as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Hint, hint. That's not in there. Hint, hint, it's not in there. That's, That's the PTV. That's the Pastor Tom version. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go and sell everything you have. And give it to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus repeated himself. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And then Peter spoke up, Lord, we we have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, and also persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. 
Now they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. And again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we're going to ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Very common request. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they exclaimed. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Now when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to, serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to, to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called the blind man. Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. All right, again, as has been the case with each sermon, Mark packs each chapter with scenarios, encounters with Jesus, and they're meant to be snapshots along the road to discoveries about Jesus and about ourselves and our life in Him. And what we have been doing in this transitional section is doing what we have done, which is a great way to study it. Look at each of these engagements with Jesus and seeing what we can learn from them. But as I was preparing for this week's sermon, a certain way of looking at this whole section of Scripture really stood out to me as I 
heard for the third time in two chapters Jesus talk about his death. And then it, it occurred to me, I've heard other things repeated during this section. And so that's how we're going to actually look at it. We can look at it through these different events that happen and learn a lot, as we already have. The declaration of Jesus as Messiah, the transfiguration, revealing Him as God, the demoniac son who was healed, the strangers who minister in Jesus' name. We've covered those. Today we would cover the rich young ruler, John and James making their power play for the kingdom of God, and blind Bartimaeus. And we will look at them. But what I'd rather do is look at them from the 15,000 foot overview, which is kind of where my head tends to go anyway. I'm a big picture guy. And we can capture the big picture not only of this section we've read, but of these whole chapters, this transitional section, by tracing three conversations that take place throughout all of these encounters with Jesus. There's three things that are talked about, and each of them comes up three times. Got to be something intentional there. Something Mark is trying to get us to understand. So we're going to look at those three conversations that are all a part of this period after Jesus is declared as the Son of God and the Messiah, and as the disciples are coming to terms with how that changes their expectations of Him and what it means to follow Him, and even more important, the future what the kingdom of God is actually going to be. All this is flipped on its head because of what Jesus says about his own future now. And that's the first nature of the conversation. Three times Jesus brings up in two chapters and six verses the fact that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be put to death, and he's going to be raised from the dead. Three times he deals with this. It's very significant because this is the heart of his teaching in this moment with his disciples, preparing them. The second line of conversation always occurs immediately after one of these three times that Jesus talks about his impending death because the disciples were having such a hard time coming to terms with it. And that was the nature of the kingdom of God, which we're going to call, in fact, the whole sermon today is called the upside-down kingdom. Because what we see in these two chapters is a very different look at what the disciples thought the kingdom would be. Jesus turns on its head the idea of Messiah, not as a conquering king, but a suffering savior. And because of that, their whole view of what the kingdom meant had to be turned on its head. And then finally, we see this other third conversation, which kind of, you go, well, what, what place does it have? And that's the conversation about children. Three times, children come up in this conversation. Is this because this is the only time children are around? In the whole time Jesus ministers? No, they play a role in what Mark is trying to help us communicate. Remember, the way Mark wrote his gospel was not quite a linear thing. He's taking these events and putting them together with the idea of communicating truth to us. These are true events that took place, but they're organized in a way that the message that's coming through is to be seen. Why children and why here? So we're going to look at these 
three things. Now, we're not going to read all three of the statements of the first conversation. We're just going to look at this third time uh, that we read at the end of chapter 10 where Jesus says again, it says, Mark wants to emphasize that this is repetition. Let's say this together. We are going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be turned over to the chief priests. Hi, buddy. Hi, buddy. Yeah, he knows me. Just in case, that's my grandson. That's why, that's why we're having a little moment here. He trumps sermon. Sorry, Silas, Silas sermon. In that order, Savior Silas sermon. All right. <laughs> I'm sorry. Let's say this again now. Back to the cross. Okay, cross. Okay, cross. Silas sermon. Okay. We are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be turned over to the chief priests. They will condemn him to death and turn him over to the Gentiles who will mock, spit on, flog, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. It's amazing how detailed Jesus' prediction is of his death. This is exactly what's going to take place. It's as though he gets a pre-released version of the, of the film. He knows. He's not like playing it light. He's not like saying, oh, I sense dark shadows over Jerusalem. Hard times coming. Are we ready for it? No. He paints a very graphic and clear picture. He knows what's in front of him. And he wants the disciples to know it as well. Because they're following him there. And it has implications on followership in general for all of us. The second area we're going to look at with a little more detail because it plays into how we look at these scenarios in the end of chapter 10 that we just read. And that's this idea of the upside-down kingdom. There are three very clear truths that come out of Jesus' teaching that are radically different than what the, the disciples are thinking about the kingdom and themselves at that time. Three unmistakable truths that we cannot escape about what the kingdom of God is about. Truth number one, we must die in order to live. See, upside down. Die to live. This, of course, is at the end of chapter 8, after Peter gets it right about who Jesus is, then Jesus first mentions the cross. Peter goes, what you talking about? That's not going to happen. And he steps up to rebuke Jesus and Jesus rebukes him instead. And then he says this, whoever wishes to be my disciple must also deny themselves. This is what he was going to do. He was going to deny his rights as the Son of God. He's going to take up a cross for all of humanity. He says that, that follows for us. Whoever wishes to follow me must deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. For whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel, they will be the ones who save it. We've been Christians a long time, some of you, and this is familiar, but please try to imagine how radical a concept this was. The second truth, equally inescapable, is that the very last will be first. This takes place again the second time Jesus talks about his death. And again, the disciples just aren't. Jesus is laying it down, but they're not picking it up. They're caught with this idea of what the kingdom is going to be like for a conquering king. And so there's this silence in the crowd. 
like unusual silence, not the usual witty banter that was taking place, or the sports conversation. I don't know what they would talk about when they traveled, but it was unusually quiet. Like on a vacation when all of a sudden the kids in the back are too quiet and you know they're either up to something or they've had an argument, right? So Jesus finds out that they've been having an argument about who's the greatest. And we're not talking about baseball players here or quarterbacks themselves. And out of that, Jesus said, it's not about being the greatest. It's not about being the first in line. Let's read this. They had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, and let's remember, every time Mark says sitting down, he's, he's showing Jesus as the rabbi, the instructor of wisdom. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, with me, anyone who wants to be the first must be the very last. What are you talking about? That's not how it works. That's how God's kingdom works. That's how this Messiah works going to give his life up. Not take a throne. He's going to be hung on a cross. And the third inescapable truth comes out of the passage that we're looking at today. And that is that the greatest of everyone actually is the servant of everyone. Right? And that's after James and John make their power play for the two most important seats in the kingdom next to Jesus, his right and left. We'll get into that in just a few minutes. And Jesus says to them, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, speaking of himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I picture Jesus a little frustrated when he said this. I mean, three times he's told them what's ahead. Three times they've ignored it and they're having arguments about some fantasy kingdom where there's going to be thrones and power and positions. Who's going to be first? Who's going to have the power? I picture there was something really important that they needed to learn. Fortunately, Peter now looks back on this and gets it. And so Mark records it for us today. Now let's just look quickly at the, the conversation. Bye, buddy. Let's just look quickly at the conversation around children. Three things Jesus says about children. The first, to welcome children is to welcome Jesus, is to welcome the Father. In other words, children have their place in God's kingdom. They didn't have much of a place in Jewish society back then. They were ignored, but Jesus wants them. He says they've got plenty of space in the kingdom. In fact, Jesus is about to use them as an example for all of us. Second thing he says, causing a child to stumble, specifically a child who has put their faith in Jesus. So this is about causing a child to stumble in their spiritual faith their life with jesus will bring very severe judgment jesus says it would be better for you if you had a weight tied around your neck and you were cast into the deepest ocean that would be better than what's going to happen to someone who causes one of these little ones to stumble that's amazing but it's the third thing that we're going to focus on 
And that was that statement we read when we began reading that we, all of us, must receive the kingdom like a child. When I saw this pattern and began teaching it, it was through what we refer to as inductive Bible study. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Well, Phil does. Good, because he's on the church council. I'm glad to know. I'm glad to know Phil knows. Inductive Bible study is a type of Bible study where you really go into each verse and you begin to basically write out each verse. Then you group the ideas and it works its way down to a big idea. It's a great way to do study. I, I, maybe in our growth group we'll teach that for all of you because I think you'd enjoy that. But uh, Malia called me a geek for showing this earlier. This is my inductive Bible study of the transitional chapters in Mark's Gospel. And for all the other geeks here, I've got copies back at the Connect Center for you. How many are going to pick one up? Thank you! I love all five of you. That's great. All right, so this traces, these colors trace these three conversations throughout the events that take place. So here's the conversations about the cross, the conversations about the kingdom. Here's the conversations about children. The last one, you'll see I've got this big kind of pink marker with big bolds that says, interpretive key to what follows. We must become like children. I, I want you to see everything we're about to look at as we now take a quick look at these three events through that lens. Because I think that's the whole point that we're trying to get here. What does it look like to have this, to become like a child, and in doing so, to not miss the kingdom? So that's what we're going to look at. Now, to help you understand that, let me talk about that classic film of 1990s called Hook. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Robin Williams, a few of you. How many of you were not born in 1991? All right, okay. Your loss. Do I need to explain the basic idea of Peter Pan? Right? Neverland, pirates, I don't want to grow up, Wendy. You got all that. All right. So in this movie, in this movie, Peter has left Neverland, but he left it many years after his time with Wendy, and she's now an old woman. So he falls in love with and marries her granddaughter. Ten years have gone by. And Peter and the granddaughter and their kids finally visit Wendy, who's now a very old woman. And there's this scene where Wendy comes down the stairs, de kind of decrepit and old. And, and Peter has sort of forgotten Neverland. And in the conversation, what comes up is what Peter has chosen to do as a grown-up for his career. And he basically does corporate takeovers. He's a corporate lawyer, and he specializes in corporate takeovers. And the son basically brags that he takes no prisoners. And Wendy looks at Peter and says, Why, Peter, you've grown up to be a pirate. I, I think there's some God truth there. I think in some sense all people grow out of their childlike wonder and simplicity, and in some sense, we become pirates. We develop these blind spots that keep us from seeing Jesus clearly and following Him simply. And I think that's what these 
encounters are about. And so let's go through these encounters real quick, and we're going to look at them through the lens of grown-up issues. What are the grown-up issues? So the first grown-up issue is controlling the narrative. We see that way back in chapter 8, when Peter just has nothing to do with Jesus' statement about what's ahead. Peter likes the idea that Jesus is the Messiah. He likes the idea of following him. But he doesn't like Jesus' narrative. And so he wants to control the narrative. He pulls him aside and he says, no, that's not how this is going to go. Right? Isn't that exactly what grown-ups do? Isn't that exactly how we come to Jesus? Our growth group that's doing spiritual disciplines, holy habits, last week watched a video of our holy habits sermon series where Len Cowan is preaching on the Lord's Prayer. And he made the comment, you know, most of us pray, your kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's exactly it. We want Jesus, but we want to control even Jesus. We'd never admit it. But we want Jesus to work for us. And it keeps us from seeing what really matters. Let's say this together. Jesus rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What an amazing statement. Merely human concerns. Well, excuse me for having concerns. His concerns were pretty bold. The kingdom of God. Christ ruling Israel being delivered from its oppressors. They were not bad ideas. But compared to God's greater ideas, His were merely human concerns. And how often do we as grown-ups shrink down who God is and our expectations into our merely human concerns? That in the end will matter very little for eternity. When God's got bigger things. And it keeps us from embracing the childlike truth of the kingdom. That's grown-up issue number one. Grown-up issue number two is revealed through the rich young ruler. Now, you could hear lots of great sermons on this text. Just Google it someplace. You can find all sorts of great one-offs where they look at this event and explore it. I want you to see it the way Mark presents it. It's part of this greater lesson, right? So this young man comes to Jesus, and he has an important question in mind. What must I do to inherit eternal life, to gain eternal life? That's the question. The whole subject's about the kingdom of God, entering the kingdom of God. We're on point. And Jesus says when he calls him good teacher, he makes this point. Well, who's good? There's no one good but God. Now, it happens that Jesus is God. But his point is, no one really is good who's a human. And he uses the illustration or the Ten Commandments to bring that out. And he lists the commandments that have to do with human relationship. And the young man says, I've done all these things. So far, so good. And then it says this remarkable thing, Jesus loved him. And so what he said was, of course, that's good enough. You're doing fine. You just go ahead. Everything's great. I love you. All we need is love. Love is all you need. Wise person said that. It was not Jesus. <laughs> no, it's not what he did. Because to love someone is to speak the truth. 
That's what he does. He points at the thing that is the grown-up issue for this young man. He says, okay, so here's what it is. And remember, this is all in the light of if anyone wants to come after me, let them lose their life, take up their cross. So for him, that meant sell all of your possessions. Give them away to somebody else who needs them because you're going to follow me and I'll be enough for you, which is actually a truth for all of us in terms of following Jesus. And it says he turns away sad because he had great wealth. In other words, it was the thing he couldn't get rid of. Riches are another grown-up issue that keeps us from seeing the kingdom. Our possessions. And I'm not just talking about the person that you wish you were like. I'm talking about you. Your riches, your possessions get in the way of your simply trusting Jesus as a child. And so Jesus says, it, 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 this is an amazing statement. It is easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for someone to enter the, than a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, how many of you have heard in a sermon somebody say, you know, there was this, there was this gate in Jerusalem that was really low, and, and they called it the... the the eye of a needle, and the only way a camel could get through it was to get on their knees. How many have heard that? <laughs> There's absolutely no historical proof of that. And the whole point of this is that it's impossible. Not that you have to, you just have to humble yourself. That's what you, No! It's impossible. And the disciples get that. That's why they then ask, well, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? And Jesus' response is what matters. With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. This is the eternal truth of the gospel. None of us can earn our way to heaven. Right question. Here's the answer. It's only possible with God. It's only possible through divine intervention, and that's why the cross was ahead of Jesus. See? Now quickly, grown-up issue Number three, this is that power play that James and John make when they come up to Jesus and they start the conversation with Jesus. We want you to do whatever we're going to ask, which is how all of us start our prayer. Come on, truth, truth here. So most, most often we don't even bother praying until we got something like that. Lord Jesus, there's something I need to ask you. I want you to do it. That, that's, what, that's when prayer starts for most of us. James and John are just you and me in sandals. That's it. That's it. So what do you want? Well, we want to sit at your right and your left in the kingdom. Which actually, I can understand why they thought that. James, John, and Peter were part of the triad that saw things. They were on the the mountain for the transfiguration. They saw the whole thing and they knew, man, the kingdom's going to come. Somebody's got to be at the right and left hand. There's three of us and there's no way Peter's going to make it. <laughs> so it's you and me, bro. James and John. So it makes perfect sense to them. We just think that's where this is going. I mean, that is, that is why you know, we're, we've, we're in this mentoring program, right? With you. Right? It's a power play. They're reaching for power. And Jesus is to say, that's the worst thing. That's the, one, that's the thing that will keep you from the kingdom. James and John, let one of us sit in your side when we're in glory. 
Isn't that amazing that the three things that come up in this story that keep grown-ups from the childlike faith that is necessary, the very three things that every generation struggles with, control, possessions, power. They're no different than you and me. And to the degree that you hold these things, you will miss what God has for you and you may miss completely the kingdom of God altogether. Wow! I love the 15,000 foot view. It reveals truths for all of us. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. Now we have one final encounter, and that's a blind man named Bartimaeus. Why, why here? Why this moment with Bartimaeus? The thing I want you to notice, first of all, is that it's the only person who was healed who was blind whose name is given to us. That's intentional. We're meant to, he actually goes into it, Bartimaeus, which by the way means son of Timaeus. He, he really wants us to focus on that. Why? Because he wants us to know this guy personally because he represents something in the story. What Bartimaeus represents is true childlike faith. What it actually takes to be in the kingdom. You know the story... Uh, because we read it, but let's just talk it through. Jesus is leaving Jericho, and there at the gate is blind Bartimaeus in his regular begging position. And normally it's a very humble position because they are thought to have been under God's judgment, resulting in their blindness. So they're very humble, very childlike in their position in society. But here's Jesus is coming. And he loses all sense of decorum. And what we see is a very childlike response. He begins shouting out, shouting out, which was not his place. But he begins shouting out, Jesus, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And his society immediately tries to push him back in his place. And he won't have anything to do with it. He just keeps shouting, Jesus, like a kid at the candy aisle. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus heard him. And he comes. And here's what's interesting. Jesus asks Bartimaeus the exact same question he asks James and John. Word for word. What is it you want me to do for you? And he said, well, I'd like a little more control of my narrative and a lot more possessions and a little power. Now he just says, I'd, I'd like to see. And Jesus said to him, your faith has saved you. Go your way. And what he chose to do instead was to follow Jesus. See? There are different types of blindness, aren't there? And the worst blindness is not physical. It's the blindness of our need to control, our need to possess for security, our need to have some power over something or someone. These are the blindness that will cause you and I to miss the kingdom of God. But if you can get rid of those, I'm going to say one more thing. Right now the American gospel is rooted completely in actually getting those things. To the degree of your faith, you will have control. You'll even get Jesus to work for you. Get on your agenda. You'll have lots of money. 
and you'll have power and authority. That's the prosperity gospel, and it's a ticket away from the kingdom of God. You will never get into the kingdom of God through that. It's the greatest heresy out there today, and it's all over our airways. And if you're listening to me right now on the internet, tune it out and hear the words of Jesus who says you must become like a child. And to do that, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, die to those things. And if you can learn to lay all those things aside so that you're standing before Jesus with nothing to lay claim of, then all you'll have left is this prayer. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. And He will. And you will find the kingdom.